Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Bo Sanders. I'm Randy Woodland. And today we are live with some of our best friends in the universe. (laughs) (laughs) It is Saturday morning and we always look forward to these live Zoom chats. We had had this one on the calendar since Christmas and we have been looking forward uh, to getting together in this hyperspace uh, that the interwebs allow. And so we thank you all for being here with us today. I thought it would be good since um, this is an audio uh, podcast so that people can learn to identify your voices if we would do a little roll call and maybe uh, introduce yourself a little bit. So I think if each of you could repeat this phrase, um, then uh, give people enough time. Are you ready? I'm the very model of a modern major general. I've been from ancient animal, vegetable, mineral. I know the kings of England. I quote the place historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order is categorical. In fact, it matters animal, vegetable, mineral. I'm the very model of a modern major general. Okay, so let's all do that. Oh, and many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm just impressed you did that while you were eating. Yeah, really, with a mouthful of food. You could tell, huh? <laughs> All right, so who's going to get us started? We have four partners at the table today, besides Randy and I. And so uh, somebody introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Dan, and I'm from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I listen to you from the great white north. It is definitely white and cold up here. That could be taken two ways, Dan. I, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe should be. (laughs) Um, I'm Alicia. I live in Salem. I am currently a seminary student. I identify as a free-range pastor because I resigned from leadership in the church last year, which has made for an interesting um, uh, season of change. Hi, I'm Ryan, and I may not be a modern major general, but uh, I do want to be a pirate in the Pirates of Penzance. (laughs) <laughs> My name is Rob uh, in Northern California, serving in church ministry, and uh, recently uh, started back to school myself. Oh, how's that going? Uh, I um, am constantly reminded that I'm not as smart as I'd like to be, but other than that, it's going pretty well. <laughs> there is the imposter syndrome in the academy is undeniable i mean i you constantly feel like i got an invite this week to be on a different podcast and it's in one of the the subjects i wrote my qualifying exams in and i'm like uh i would have to go back and read my entire like get back up to speed if i'm going to go and talk about that intelligently it's it's unbelievable so since our last live chat uh, we have, Randy and I did a reading list that we were suggesting things for people uh, to get uh, on their Christmas list or to pick up if they get uh, any book money for Christmas. And so we did that. After the break, we came back, we talked about protest and encounters, especially focusing on that uh, event in Washington, D.C. Um, then we talked about ally do's and don'ts. Um, how to be an ally, and Randy gave us some good direction there. Uh, most recently, we did uh, Progress, was two weeks ago, where I talked about the angel of history and why I don't identify as a progressive. 
And then last week was why light bulbs and laundry lines won't save the planet. So there's plenty to talk about there. Where would you all like to start? So I really enjoyed the um, episode where you guys were talking about uh, ritual and ceremony, not necessarily being religion. And um, Randy was talking about... um, I was making notes while I was driving, which is probably not the safest. (laughs) Please stop doing that. I have to write that down or I'll forget it. Um, But he was talking about replicating values and not just duplicating the whole, like we can't go back to the way that it was, but what are those values that we can carry forward? Um, And then the thing that I actually had to pull over to write down and listen to a couple times. So I got it. All the things down was talking about the gold edge Bibles (laughs) and the values of gold and what that signifies. And uh, yeah, I wanted you guys to talk more about that because I was losing my, I may have been yelling in the car. It's fine. Randy, talk to us about uh, gold historically. Uh, I'm assuming you're going to talk about also the colonial uh, session with gold and then to put uh, gold embossing on our precious Gutenberg Bibles. It's not just Gutenberg. You're in everyday Bible, right? Yeah, I was being... I was being they all have gold edges, right? I was being sassy. And, and you Don't know, like because... It. That actually makes the um, the words more precious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, gold. You know, the um, most of the terror that has been uh, enacted in the Americas is was in pursuit of gold and silver, and most of the world's wealth was extracted from South America, Mexico, and North America. Um, the silver and the gold, and um, you know, you would think that that would be something that uh, people who claim to be Christians would, like, have an aversion to. Um, but instead, they cling to it. And that, that really tells us a lot about Christianity and where it's at. Um, just one little symbol. Um, what was the first part, Alicia, that you said about we got it stuck on the gold here? Oh, yeah, that was, that was, I was loud about that. I'm talking about ritual and ceremony as spiritual practice is not necessarily religion. And then um, replicating values, but not trying to duplicate things from the past. Yeah. So, um, so symbol and story, uh, traditions, ritual, all of those have to do with the past, right? They, they bring to our remembrance, the things of the past, they bring to our remembrance, the values that brought us forward uh, to those places uh, that we're in now, and they help us to solve the problems that are in the present. Um, And so all of those things are sort of reminders of the past, as are monuments, by the way. Um, And so we live by those monument myths in America. Uh, Most of them are lies. You know, we've built our myths on those. And... um, and so um, we, we're not trying to go back to, you know, um, it's not some sort of like, um, well, let's go back and get rid of all of our toilets and airplanes and, you know, all of that stuff. Okay, airplanes, okay, I'd be okay with that. But, uh, but don't take my toilet. <laughs> and um, we're not saying let's go back to, to that, but we're saying it's the values Every uh, indigenous people are are genius at adapting. 
we've been adapting, you know, all the time. We're not, so we're not trying to go back and, you know, the Plains tribes live in teepees again or, you know, et cetera. But, um, uh, and, and that's okay if somebody wants to do that, you know, but to bring forward the values that have created the lifestyle and the, the philosophy and the, uh, the, the, um, the family ways of being and all of those from the past is, is what we need. So we're not trying to, to go back, but we're trying to bring the, our history forward with us in order to make good decisions. Is that what you were asking? Something yeah. About? Okay. yeah. Um, I think it's interesting because there's something about our culture as Americans where we have this idealized sort of romanticized view about certain periods in our history, like being the golden age when it's not necessarily universally the golden age for all people. And so um, I don't know where I was going with that, but um, I was just thinking of how often we try and just duplicate um, things that have been done before rather than adapting them to what is really in front of us right now. Right. So I don't want to go back to a Western civilization history of anything because the, the values are, I don't line up with my values. The values are, uh, you know, greed and um, capitalism and genocide and, and uh, enslavement and, you know, seeing everybody who's not uh, uh, white as a cultural other and less human and, you know, on and on and on. We could name all those kinds of things. So, so there's nothing in American civilization, at least very few values, that I would want to bring forward. Um, so I can't celebrate that. On the 4th of July, I can't celebrate that. But um, the values that were already here, interwoven with the land and the indigenous people for thousands of years before that, I can say let's go back to that um, and bring those values forward. Can I say something here? Yeah. No. So... <laughs> I said yes. Randy, Randy, it, the, together is in our first, it's in our name, together. All oh, together. Sorry, I lost my mind for a minute. <laughs> so, Do I need to um, remind you that you guys are piecing it all together? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I was I was promised that Randy was in a mood today, and I'd like to yes, see more. We're going to get there. We will get there. So this is Bo, and one of the things that I... Uh, I'm concerned about is that for Western and, and specifically white folks, because of the nature of late capitalism and a media culture, we are into experiences, not ritual and ceremony. In fact, the only time that I really see ritual and ceremony being uh, sought out and appropriated is when the doldrums and the boredom of our, whether it's suburban existence or whatever you want to say, our nine to five, the, uh, has, is haunting us. We go looking for something other, something else. And so some people like have converted to Anglicanism because of its bodily practices. They find deep meaning in that, but they're seeking out that ritual and ceremony as a supplement to the assumptions, right? Normal existence. Some people have tried to appropriate a Native American spirituality, and I've, I've seen that before. But some people go for other things, like maybe they get into a, a fetish sexuality, or maybe they start going uh, for adrenaline sports, or maybe they get uh, a year uh, seasonal pass to Disneyland so they can go on roller coasters and go, you know, and virtual re virtual reality becomes right an attraction that 
because the Western, uh, we have been socialized and conditioned to be experiential, that there is a danger that we are seeking out ceremony and ritual as a supplement instead of questioning the very thing that we've inherited. That's my deep concern. Well, in the context of church, you're not allowed to ask those questions. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> They'll shut that down. Touché. And I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's super interesting um, talking about chasing experiences because I, I think that um, we are so instant gratification, like we need mm-hmm. the thing, we need it now. And if we're at all uncomfortable or inconvenienced, we lose our minds. Like they spelled my name wrong on my Starbucks cup that I don't, sh- I don't go to Starbucks. <laughs> but I'm just, like, I had to wait. <laughs> 10 minutes in the drive-thru lane for fresh French fries. It's like the worst injustice I've experienced this week. <laughs> and um, so White people <laughs> problems. I, I'm just, <laughs> you know, I, instead of being grateful, like, hey, I got fresh French fries. It's a great thing. Um, I think it, like we as a culture don't know how to be present in our own bodies and our own experiences. And we don't know how to hold space for our own discomfort. And so rather than dealing with what we're experiencing um, in our bodies and like in church, you're told to not, you know, don't trust your feelings, lean on the Lord, not your own understanding. And it like, um, it devalues the human experience. Like, yes, we have a relationship with God, but we're also humans and you, yes, we're not, I'm not of this world. Don't even get me started on the bumper stickers. Um, but we are present. Like you, you can't, that's just nonsense. Sorry. I just can't with that. All right. What's topic number two? You know, I am curious about, uh, what Randy, you said in the last, uh, episode about the earth having, or at least being given and recognized certain inalienable rights. So that got me to thinking because I heard that and I went, well, yeah, uh, seems seems pretty pretty obvious to me. Maybe not to most, but I was like, yes, absolutely. But then I was going, well, well, how do we do that? Um, and the more I thought about it, in our current legal system, uh, I'm not even sure that that's doable. Um, so what does it look like then? If, if, if we were unable to get that as part of the law, um, what would it look like going forward? Say if we're unable or able to get that as part of the law. I think if we're unable to, because I'm curious. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of questions about, because the law in and of itself is, is utilitarian. Hmm. Okay, so is this to talk about whether or not um, we can legislate morality. Uh, it's called, you know, um, helping the earth, a moral thing. Or uh, in the practicality of this, or is there something else behind your question? Well, no, I mean, I, I, I'm not really sure how, if we have 10 years to really okay. change our ways. Um even if we were to get all this legislation, everything through the courts um, that needs to happen, um, I, I'm, I'm not even sure that could we would be able to do that in 10 years because okay. of the way our system works. So that's more of what I'm curious of is, is um, because the system's got us here. The way we do things has got us where we're at. Um, so what can we do? Is there things outside of that system 
that can have equal weight. So outside of legislation? Uh, legislation as far as um, completely revamping the way we do business. Well, I, I don't – I can't think of anything. Yeah. Um, I I think the, the the fastest route is to elect a Democratic president whose main platform is the uh, uh, is climate change. Um, they call a state of emergency, which that really is a state of emergency. Um, and uh, we begin to pass those laws, and uh, and then we begin to um, give people not you know twenty years or ten years, but one year. Uh, corporations to revamp, to use some of that, all that money that they make to revamp so that uh, uh, they're abiding by laws that don't hurt the earth. Uh, maybe we'll have to have some short-term stuff like a carbon tax and those kinds of things. Uh, in the meantime, the Green New Deal, like I said, is a, a really good start. Um, but we're, yeah, we're starting too late. There's no doubt. But the difference between a 1.5 centigrade temperature increase and a 2.0 centigrade in increase is cataclysmic. And so if we don't start somewhere, it's going to be worse. So um, we're going to have to, uh, I just don't see, people are not going to change unless they're made to change. And so that's just going to have to happen. And, and everybody's going to be crying about socialism and, you know, all that, but um, you know, their great grandchildren will thank them for it. Yeah, I mean, and and one of the things I was thinking about because it just really impressed on me the importance of this next election cycle. Um, that really, it seems like the the ability to combat climate change comes down to one single election potentially. Um, but one thing that that I was thinking about too is the Antiquities Act, um, because we do have at least you know a president who's using national emergencies to to take money from military housing, um, which has mold and dilapidated, uh, to build something that's not going to work. But um, the Antiquities Act, which Teddy Roosevelt used, is so loose that the theory is the president, the executive, can essentially take and deem whatever they need to as far as land uh, as protected in a national monument or national park. So that might be something that uh, that is still possible uh, to be able to at least, you know, I'm curious about like, well, you know, I read an article about um, what is it, a certain grass in the Midwest that, that was plentiful, that sucks up carbon. Um, and that there's plans like, you know, if we had these like spaces where we have all these different things that can actually help suck up the carbon and all that, you know, I mean, like that we actually deem these areas, you know, safe areas for, um, if you will, for, for combating the climate change. I mean, th there's different options. Oh yeah. So I mean, there's but, also, you know, there's algae farms, there's all kinds mm -hmm. of things that are going on. I mean, they're, they're actually, um, sequestering carbon and making fuel from plastic now and from algae and it creates a, a protein uh, that can be fed to cattle but right now it's, it's too expensive because there's not large-scale operations we need those large-scale operations so um, we need you also to uh, uh, to resign your commission with the military and get into politics as fast as possible right <laughs> yeah um, oh man <laughs> But, I mean, look, and I don't want, you know, I, I
refuse to be a cynic. I do. I, I refuse to do that. Too many people I know are cynics and, and they don't get anything done. There is a fear that I have that when you try to start doing those things, um, there is another type of, of, of people uh, that, that I think are, are more dangerous than extremists. And I think it's the type that sits in the majority, which is the type that says, as long as I have my Starbucks coffee, get my hot wings and watch my football on Sunday, I'm happy. If you mess with that, I will throw a fit and a temper tantrum and I will vote you out of office. And that's the group that scares me to death. Ryan, this is Dan here. And uh, I, I think that's, that's a really good insight. Um, living in Canada, we obviously are in a different situation. But in some ways, we're a few years ahead of you. You know, I live in a province where we had 60 years of right-wing governments and, uh, and then a more left-leaning uh, provincial government was voted in and people thought it was going to be the start of change. And uh, that left-wing government just ends up pandering towards that large majority. And we had that at the federal level here too, where people thought, uh, Justin Trudeau was going to be the great uh, savior of the environment here. And once he's elected, he basically ends up doing things very similarly to the previous government has. So, um, you know, I'm interested to hear from a, an American perspective, uh, you know, you're in a two-party system, really, and um, you talk about electing a Democratic president, uh, is that really going to be the solution if uh, you have that large majority in the middle who's really just concerned about, do I have a job? Well, my first question is, can Canada annex us for a little while just, uh, <laughs> just to kind of fix some stuff here? I'm right. not sure we're in that great of a path for, for you right now either. You know, Ryan, if we had to try and navigate a coalition government like Canada has, our brains would explode. We... Uh, if we had to, if we had to figure out how the, the Tories or the NDP or had to work with a different group, we, we wouldn't even know how to put together coalitions to make stuff happen. I think an American Parliament would look a lot like American gladiators. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Now, like the British, I love the British version. They're like uh, you know gladiators with a, a, a tinge of politeness. <laughs> well, I mean, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Bo. Well, Randy, I wanted to ask you a question I've been really thinking about lately, um, which is, you know, in the mornings when I listen to CBC News, you know, the Trans Canada pipeline is is, is a really uh, hot issue right now, and maybe Dan could speak a little to that. But I, I wondered, you know, because the show is called Piecing It All Together with P E A C. Um, but I've been listening a little bit uh, to people who are contemplating eco-terrorism in order to sabotage right, this industrialization of, and, and politicization of um, this resource industry. But I've never asked you about that. You may not want to uh, talk about that on air, but I, I'm curious what you think about that sort of um, undermining plan, subversive plan. Blowing shit up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so um, it's really uh, um, puts me right on the edge, right? 
because um, I've basically taken a, um, a life stance to be a peacemaker. And, but I don't think, uh, it's just like Jesus. I don't think he was the kind of peacemaker that we think of when we think about peacemakers. Um, and so I'm not trying to be, um, a pacifist or anything like that. I'm a person who believes that it takes chaos and it takes, um, disequilibrium to actually begin to understand new paradigms so that we can find new solutions. Um, I see Jesus breaking up uh, paradigms and uh, disorienting and creating disequilibrium uh, just about everywhere he goes. And, um, and so for those who like, you know, this is religious talk. I apologize. I could probably say the same thing about uh, Gandhi Um, and uh, uh, there's others. The edge is when you go over to, you know, like Malcolm X in, uh, uh, folk like that who, and a lot of my ancestors might include my own uh, third great grandfather, um, who their very existence actually depends upon um, uh, crossing the line into violence, right? And so, um, so I'm about uh, making peace for as long as I can. Um, and I think it's always a better way, but there are times when power will not, um, give itself up. And, um, and of course there are some who said power will, people in power will never turn over power. I think that's the uniqueness of, um, some of the active nonviolence is that they find ways to do it without it. Now, um, does the system take advantage of that? Absolutely. Uh, knowing that there are people who won't get violent and things like that. Um, But um, I still think that there are subversive ways to create chaos and disequilibrium um, without harming other people and and without, yeah, harming the environment. So, yeah, it's a really tough one. I mean, I think maybe uh, in another life I would have been an eco-terrorist. Um, because, you know, today's terrorists are tomorrow's heroes, you know, I mean, look at Nelson Mandela. Um, you know, so, um, uh, I I don't believe in harming people or the earth and I'd like to keep that to a minimum, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know if that's the answer you're you're looking for. Yeah. What got me thinking about this is when you were gone, I went to a forum in downtown Portland on violence. And our uh, reading was uh, The Wretched of the Earth by Frantz Fanon. And, um, you know, he justifies violence in, right. the, in the name uh, that, um, you know, oppressive systems initiate the violence. And so whether it's self-defense or uh, undermining that system is, is responding to violence, it is not in itself inherently violent. And so some people there were trying to argue that, like, Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat in itself was violence to the system. Yeah. And I, I was trying to argue that, that it has to be about the, the corpus, the corporeal body, that there's a, a, something embodied, a, a incarnational about violence that needs to be taken into account, and that the more we make violence abstract, 
So anyway, I just thought I would ask you about that because as I've been listening to the CBC News in the mornings while I make my French press in Portland, uh, that's my hipster statement. Uh, so maybe I would. Yeah, think, we noticed. Um, I think violence um, is um, against a system is different than violence against um, beings, living beings, and the earth, which I include as living beings. Systems are evil, uh, many of them, and and uh, they have to be taken down and they have to be turned around and. Um, and so, um, but I'm not a like, you know, I, I guess I, 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 I almost get to violence as a last resort, but I don't want to be there. I just think that we can be smarter than the system because the system is drawing from things like, you know, greed and all kinds of other. And there's usually people who are in those places, um, you know, uh, maybe don't have the most wisdom or they wouldn't be in those places. And so I, I think that we can outthink them, but maybe it takes a lot more than what, what I imagine it. Uh, nonviolence is definitely uh, a place, uh, a position for the privileged, and I include myself in that. Can I, try, can I ask a question? I'm trying to tie together what Ryan was saying before and what Randy was just saying now. Um, so I'm curious to know, uh, is what are some means of chaos and disequilibrium that can help to shake up that middle majority that Ryan was talking about, you know, and uh, we might characterize them as just, you know, people interested in watching football and drinking beer and whatever. But the reality is what I've noticed among people, my neighbors is um, really what they're concerned about is uh, their jobs. Am I making as much money as I made last year? Am I able to pay my bills and that kind of thing? <clears throat> and, things like environment and equality might uh, come on their radar, but as soon as jobs are threatened or jobs start disappearing, um, that becomes their first concern. So, yeah, any thoughts on forms of chaos and disequilibrium that can help shake up that middle majority? Let's take, for example, uh, I think you have to, to, to bring it home to them and show them how it affects them, you know, I mean, no doubt. Uh, I come from uh, um, blue-collar, uh, working-class poor folks um, and, uh, you know, um, people who don't have the luxury of seeing past their jobs um, because that's the reality where, where reality hits them. So let's just take, for example, um, North Dakota, South Dakota, um, uh, Nebraska, uh, parts of Kansas, um, so underneath is the Oglala uh, um, aquifer, and dryland farming has created a situation so that, and I don't, I think it may be coming up pretty soon, that they predict that eventually the the aquifer is going to dry up because it's been used beyond its recharge rates. And so now you have, um, and this is one of the places where they're growing, you know, wheat everywhere, right? And that dryland, uh, and a lot of these folks, um, farmers, they would call themselves middle class, um, their jobs depend on that wheat. Um, so somehow they have to understand that um, using those methods and uh, uh, expending the aquifer beyond its recharge rates is not only going to cost them something, it's going to have to 
create a whole new life for them, they're probably going to lose everything. We're really, um, by do, by making that real to them, we're doing them a favor, even though they may not want to hear it. And so um, I think you have to just somehow bring it home, right? So so we're good at talking about the big picture scenario, but we also need people in the, the grassroots, uh, people who understand uh, that lifestyle, that particular trade, et cetera, um, who can, who can translate those things. Yeah. I, you know, I also come from a blue collar family. I mean, I come from a long line of trade unionists and you know, hardworking Americans. And I saw that and I went, I think I'm going to work for the government. Um, you know, cause I didn't want to work that hard, but you know, I think, I think in many ways though, there would be, a massive need for skilled workers in a new economy that's based on um, responsible green uh, approaches to everything because, you know, you actually need a lot of trade workers. Uh, We need to make things with our hands. We need to, I mean, we need to get back to the earth and get dirt under those fingernails. I mean, you know, I think one of the biggest problems is there's how many Americans have a connection to the land. I grew up on a farm. I mean, if you didn't, if you didn't work the land, if you didn't work with the land, you you ain't going to succeed because it's not going to work with you if you just ignore it. So I, I actually think there is a case that can be made for our hardworking middle-class trade workers because this is going to hit them hard. And I think we need them to, and, and it wouldn't be that hard to just bring in that skilled labor force into a new type of economy. Dan, just two quick thoughts. Um, the first is just the nature of late capitalism has to be taken into account. I go on this uh, amazing canoe trip every May uh, with a group of guys who I've walked for a long time with. And a couple years ago, we were talking about something like this, and I just had an epiphany, and I said, I just want to point out that the five of us who are sitting around this fire, none of us make anything, and neither do our partners or spouses. So that's 10 people who are all in a service industry. Mm. Not a single one of us makes a damn thing right? That's the nature of late capitalism. The second thing I would say is when you live in a region of the country that is propped up on extraction industry, like the oil fields, right? The oil sands or or where Randy was talking about in North Dakota, South Dakota, people have an expectation, right? Because it's a boom situation where their expectations get warped. And so I grew up in, in, in just close to where Randy was, the same region of the country, and everyone I knew where I was born were either dairy farmers or, or, or worked in a steel mill or drove semi-trucks, right? Like that's, that's my uh, frame of reference. And so, yeah, they're really uh, – it's important, right, what you do for a living. But when an, an extraction industry changes people's expectations – it actually is difficult after the boom is over to come back down. I mean, you can't go back to being a wheat farmer in Alberta, right? If you've been getting this uh, somehow benefiting from an, from the oil boom in the, in the oil center. This is exactly what we're facing right now. 
So I, I also would draw on people's patriotism. <clears throat> it's un-American to expend the resources to the point where uh, that it's going to cost us all, you know, livelihoods and everything else. So um, it's a, you remember in World War II, they would have, you know, um, uh, drives for scrap metal and rubber and all those kinds of things, and people sacrifice. Well, a lot of our farmers, um, it's not going to be that great. It may, it may be some major changes, but it's not going to be total lifestyle change to begin uh, algae farms or kudzu farms or other kinds of things that actually build America up. Uh, or build Canada up, and um, and and I I think we need to remind them that we all have a duty to the future of the country. And I'm not a great nation state advocate, but um, since I'm living here, I think I'd like to take care of uh, things, um, and and uh, we need to push that. And I I think that's that's our patriotic duty. And I don't talk a whole lot about patriotism, but make America great again. Let's make America green again. <laughs> All right. So maybe it would be good for us to hear from somebody we haven't heard a lot from. Um, Rob or Alicia, anything you want to talk about? Well, I'll jump in just with a quick story. We're having some uh, some Alberta conversations here. And uh, Make America Great Again has been mentioned. I happened to uh, go to Edmonton last summer. Um, and, uh, just realized, I, I didn't realize the local political situation in Alberta, that it was a historically conservative province. And as I walked through their giant mall, I not only saw uh, make America great again hats. I also saw a hat with the similar lettering and coloring that said something to the effect of make Trudeau a theater teacher again. Um, so I, I guess that's historically still a very uh, conservative place. That's the only, uh, uh, quick thing I wanted to throw in right there. It's really true. And we actually have a strong separatist movement in Alberta right now. There's a lot of uh, anti-Trudeau rhetoric and talking about wanting to seed off our province. So, by the way, um, and Ryan made a, a note, which I think is apropos. Um, and Ryan, if you want to talk about who the real eco-terrorists are. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, to me, when I hear eco-terrorism, of course, you know, I, I remember, um, I'm a millennial, um, so obviously I'm a snowflake who's never worked a job and, you know, whines about everything, right? Um, and I say that all tongue-in-cheek. But to me, you know, I remember ELF um, in the 90s, Earth Liberation Front, there was... ALF, I think as well, Animal Liberation Front, uh, growing up in the Northwest. You know, I remember um, these stories that would come on the news about the eco-terrorists and, and my family being good Second Amendment Reagan Democrats who became Republicans. You know, we were like, you know, preparing to go to war against all these greeny, meany liberals in Portland. Of course, none of that happened, but the more I... I gained knowledge and grew older, I came to realize that, man, you know, eco-terrorism, well, that seems to be like folks like uh, ConocoPhillips and ExxonMobil, Chevron, number 45. Um, you know, I mean, like, you know, terrorism against the earth, to me, is the people who 
take from it and don't give anything back to it and don't and, and view the earth as as a as something to be consumed rather than uh, she, our mother. Well said. Okay. So I, I got a question about the bumper sticker since you brought it up. Yes. For Dan. And Dan, I, I want you to represent all of Canada in this. <laughs> uh, of course. <laughs> so, so I have a, uh, I generally have a lot of bumper stickers on my vehicle and I know Bo doesn't really care for bumper stickers either, but, uh, <laughs> but I do. And uh, uh, I love a great bumper sticker. And uh, I went up to Canada one time and, um, we were actually uh, going up to give a vehicle to uh, some friends of ours um, who were on the Big Grassy Reserve, and um, and that vehicle had a bunch of bumper stickers on it, right? So um, uh, everybody came out and it's like um, after we were inside for a couple hours, and you know, and, and this was you know way before the hockey game was on, so everybody was just kind of not knowing what to do, and. Uh, <laughs> That's a joke, right? So, um, and, uh, and all of a sudden there's like, you know, like, uh, 15 people out looking at the back of our van reading the bumper stickers. And I said to my friend, I said, Hey, what's going on out there? They, what are they looking at? And she goes, well, bumper stickers. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, people up here don't really have a lot of bumper stickers. So they think it's really interesting. So can you explain that phenomenon, Dan? Or is that, uh, something that's, uh, maybe inside the reserve? I don't know. <laughs> All I can say is, you know, Canada has some differences from the U.S. We've got, you know, <laughs> universal health care, and we don't have bumper stickers. So okay. I guess it's, you know, form of enlightenment. Shots <laughs> fired. Yeah, well, you know, our Federal Reserve is money. Your Federal Reserve is maple syrup. Just uh, oh. <laughs> I'll take the maple syrup. Yeah, maple syrup actually does sound really good right now. Hey, with the time we have left, I'd like to go to two things. Is there anything y'all want to talk about that wasn't on a previous uh, episode? And then we're going to find out what, what's, what's got Randy hot under the collar this morning, a bee in his bonnet. I don't know if we have time for that. Okay. So let's go to the wild card round. Anything y'all want to talk about that we haven't covered in the last five episodes? I, I mean... I just have to say, I'm in a bad mood, too. It was a bad week, and I'm so fed up with all this crap that I'm seeing against AOC and then a racist Republican representative using a black woman as a prop and then Congresswoman Tlaib being raked over the coals and the chairman of the committee not really standing up when she was in the right it's like the whole world's gone mad or maybe I've gone mad and the world's normal. I have no idea, but rant over. I'm just fed up. I think the madness is just out of the closet and we see it more. Yeah. I think it's being live streamed. Mm -hmm. We have access to it. This is is one of the three things that's got me ticked off too. Is the, just that I watched the, you know, I recorded and watched the whole thing. Right. And, um, and I, I, uh, Facebooked and tweeted my concerns about uh, uh, Congressman uh, Meadows. Is it? Yes. And, who, uh, who, by the way, said we need America to send Barack Obama back to Kenya. So you know, he says he's not a racist. Um, so yeah. So yeah, I was my concern about his statement was that he, um, yes, he 
he did use a, a woman of color as a prop. Um, yes, uh, he did say that uh, he doesn't see color. Yes, he did say that uh, one of my good friends and my nieces and nephews are black. And uh, yes, he was more upset about uh, being called a racist than the actual racism, which are all, you know, signs of white fragility and, you know, uh, fall into that category of white supremacy. But, but my concern is that he is really a racist because he, he has not processed these things. He's not, he's got people of color as his constituents and he's not even thought about structural racism and the kinds of white fragility that occur. And, and, uh, he's just like unenlightened and, to be in that position and to be so unenlightened is being a racist. Because that means, well, you go along with that, the long history of white supremacy and racism in this country. Um, if you're not willing to work on it, get out of office and put, let somebody in who is. Randy we, Randy, we should do an episode in the future about race. <laughs> I thought every episode. <laughs> Oh, I don't know why I'm the only one who laughed at that. Sorry. I, I, I was <laughs> muted, but yes, that was funny. <laughs> I'm just, I always get nervous laughing out loud about anything having to do with race. I'm just, <laughs> you know, what always, what always just strikes me funny about when people say, I don't see color, you know, even if you're colorblind, you know, even if all you see is black and white, you're still seeing black. There you go. <laughs> I would just like to say, in terms of art, black and white are values and not actually colors. So just. Well, isn't black is all color and white is no color, right? Yeah. yeah. So hmm, there might be a sermon in there somewhere. I actually used uh, the conversation about colorblindness in one of the, my last sermons that I did last year of like how, first of all, for me, to say that I am colorblind is probably just the most ridiculous thing that I could say um, artistically. And um, for those of you who don't see, I have a lot of color on right now. Um, but talking about that, the issue isn't necessarily the labels that we use. It's the value system that we ascribe to them. Like it, if, if I went through the grocery store and took all of the labels off the cans, you wouldn't know if you're getting green beans or peaches. And it kind of makes a difference. And when we as white people say things like, I don't see color, you're, you're refusing to acknowledge somebody, a part of their identity or maybe a majority of their identity. And you don't have the right to do that. Oh, Absolutely. I have, uh, I have one of the things that I think makes me unique, but it also is very problematic. And I know this is I usually am not as fascinated with the thing as the thing behind the thing. So sometimes I look like I'm like focusing on, um, on like minor and secondary issues, but I really am fascinated, um, I mentioned uh, before we started recording this thing about the blue parakeet. Uh, Scott McKnight tells a story that it had gotten out in the backyard and uh, the, the flock of other birds was just so agitated and so loudly protesting the presence of this blue parakeet. And this has sort of become a, a code word uh, for when one, the presence of one other gets the flock uh, all worked up. And so while, yes, there are issues that AOC is bringing up, and I know that they're, they're substantial and that we really need to deal with them, I'm also nearly as equally intrigued by how much attention she gets and the animosity and the volume and the critique for one – she's just one 
of many people, but there's something about her that is like that blue parakeet gets, there is something that is being focused on and obsessed over. I, as a media theorist, I am fascinated with this. Are we, are we, have we explained who AOC is? Oh, you know what we did before we started recording? That's my bad. Okay. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yes. And she is uh, from New York. Yes. Uh, and the right hates her with a oh. And, you know, every time I turn on Fox News, which I do, uh, <laughs> throughout the day just to see, like, okay, what's their headlines? What are they talking about? And they're not even talking about the same stuff that other folks are talking about, right? It's really uh, just a just a propaganda machine. But mm-hmm. but uh, uh, they uh, one thing that's consistent is they are just ripping on her constantly. It's like, yeah. you know, um, and so there's there's obviously some – uh, um, young brown woman envy there, you know, um, and uh, they uh, and this whole socialism thing, you know, it's like, like they branded her like a, a, a socialism terrorist kind of a person, and it's so crazy, you know. She's a young, articulate, intelligent Latina woman, and um, and they don't have one like that. And um, now. I want to get back to one of um, uh, Dan's statements, and I don't remember if this was uh, before or after Dan, but the Democrat Party is not going to save us, okay? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, let's go back to this. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, uh, my friend Mark Charles likes to remind everybody that the last time that the Doctrine of Discovery was um, uh, in uh, was upheld uh, or used to upheld a court case, that, that the opinion was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, um, who is, you know, like completely on the other side, right? So, so yep. this is not really a, uh, Democrat, uh, is going to save us or the Republicans are going to save us. Or like I say, the Republicans, this is about really like what, what I would call justice, uh, putting justice first. And if the Republicans start, you know, you know, r- running down the justice trail, then, you know, let's get them in office. But, it's whoever's going to move us there the fastest is what I'm concerned about. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I hear you. And I guess uh, we're just in a situation here in Canada where uh, we had some pretty right wing leaning governments that in the previous election cycle were, uh, were ousted and there was a lot of hope in the new governments coming in. And those hopes have been dashed. And uh, 2019 is both a provincial and federal election year here. So uh, it's it's top of mind for all of us. And uh, it's a situation where a lot of us don't know who to vote for because uh, we're not seeing progress from from any of the major political parties. Yeah. And I don't know if your situation is as drastic as ours right now. I mean – this isn't just liar, liar, pants on fire. Our whole damn house is on fire, right? <laughs> so we've got to, you know, get the fastest water to it as possible. And, and uh, you know, I hope that we can pull together and do that. Yeah. You, you all, you non-Canadians might find this interesting. Um, you know how Democrats are already announcing for the 2020 presidential campaign. So I mean, this is going to be a year like and a half. everybody. Yeah. Dan, Dan, how quickly do uh, our elections called in Canada? Oh man, it's a very different cycle here. It's a much shorter cycle, that's for sure. 
Yeah. You can call you can call an election and have it what six or eight weeks? Yeah, eight weeks. Yeah. Eight weeks. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, in two thousand eight, millions of Americans put their hope behind Barack Obama. And one of the things that, that I will remember most about him, um, not only for the Affordable Care Act, but something else that's that's very negative was when there was and still is a water crisis in Flint, Michigan. He went there, got a gla- asked for a glass of water, a Flint water, and then drank it in front of the crowd and everybody was, you know, shocked. And he goes, "Well, I, basically something to the effect of, well, I feel good. I feel fine." And then got on the plane and left. Hmm. Um we cannot pin our hopes on a party or a branch of government. Yep. Really, to me, this is about uh, local communities coming together. And hopefully local communities and states and, you know, the big nation state can ultimately be impacted. But, you know, our hopes are in each other. And that's, I mean, the whole point of the podcast, right, piecing it all together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to work together in community. And we got to figure out what that looks like, but we don't have a lot of time. Well said. I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, that sentiment that we are the ones we've been waiting for has never been more true. But there does need to be an interface. And I guess, again, it's on my mind because it's an election year, an interface between that and the political, a larger political machine. Yeah. And I think that's uh, some of what you guys are helping me to understand. Um, that there is that that interface, and you know, Alicia, you were talking about uh, ritual and ceremony, and I think I, I think that fits in there as well. You know, uh, it's very easy to think of ritual and ceremony as a personal thing that I'm involved in, and and those are valuable. You know, Randy, I've even learned from you about the water ritual, and uh, I've been using some of that in the morning, uh, but. But unless it connects, uh, unless ritual and ceremony connects us to our community around us, uh, it can leave us feeling very isolated. And uh, we've got to find a way to build those in so that we're building some community around us too. Yeah. Good point. Randy, one of my favorite things you've ever said in our recording is when you said that the ceremony and the rituals, if they are detached from the values behind them, are empty. Uh, I've actually had three different people reach out to me and let me know how powerful that was uh, and how it has changed their thinking. Yeah. With, without ceremony and ritual being attached to values, it, what's the word I'm looking for? Is it just voyeurism at that point? Um, you know, it, it seems at least, it seems at least like uh, tourism um, if it's not attached to some sort of, uh, some sort of values. Yeah. Well, and we, we say things like, you know, you're in our thoughts and prayers, but there's not any action or intention behind it. We do a lot of um, pretense and uh, lip service to issues that we should be actively engaging on. By the way, if, if you haven't used, if, if, you, if you're not aware of it yet, I have turned the phrase thoughts and prayers into T's and P's, just to kind of mock it a little bit um, as being a worthless little phrase. Oh boy. I say it deeply sarcastically and then laugh afterwards. So I'm probably there not the person to talk up to. <laughs> I saw a protest. I called a heretic a couple last week. It was great. Oh, that's, it's a wonderful place to be. 
I think you commented on that too, Ryan. I saw a protest sign that said, um, if we use thoughts and prayers to guard our children's schools, why can't we use them to guard our borders? Yeah. Ouch. (laughs) Well, as we wrap up our time together, does anybody have any uh, final thoughts? Any grievances? Let's do airing of grievances. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're Okay. Well, thank you all for being here today. Alicia, I will send you an email as soon as we're offline. Yeah. Um, we were talking about my PhD advisor, Cheryl Kajo Holbrook, and her interreligious work. It's called God Beyond Borders, and I will send you a link to her work. And uh, hopefully that will become an up uh, subject in an upcoming podcast is interreligious work. Yes. I'm interested in that. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you all for being here, and thank you for your ongoing support. Randy and I, it means so much to us that you are not only participating with us, but that you have invested in us and this conversation. So we wanted to say thank you. Thank you, guys. You are quite welcome. This is fun, and uh, we really enjoy um, the the feedback. Uh, This is when we get to actually realize that there are real people actually listening to this, which I wasn't convinced until we started doing this, that there were, that somehow Bo was playing some kind of a computer numbers game with me. And, uh, and so I just want to say how grateful I am to, uh, to interact with uh, people. And we only get to do this. What is it? Every other month? Bo, is that what we do? Yeah. Every other month. Yeah. So, um, Maybe when things get hopping, we can do it more often. Um, uh, my schedule is going to change in a couple months, and, and uh, but uh, yeah, let's let's uh, you guys please keep giving us feedback, and um, you know I'm sure that there are things that I say that are pretty damn stupid, and uh, I always uh, appreciate somebody calling me on those whenever I do. So thanks for doing that too. All right, be well. Thank you. Peace be with you. All right. Peace. Peace. Bye.